It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. You know, Rich, since 1973, when Roe versus Wade was passed there in the Supreme Court saying abortion taking the life of an unborn child, of course, they didn't put it that way. Uh, the March for Life on Washington, ever since they started it, has grown and grown, except this year it was bigger than ever. Isn't that interesting? Oh, my goodness, yes. I was watching the media. What were they saying about it? What was CNN saying about it or MSNBC? What was the media saying about it? What were the newspapers saying about it? They were saying as little as they could get away with. They were trying to ignore it. They were trying to treat it as a non-story. And yet it was one of the biggest stories, right, during that whole time. Now, why was it one of the biggest stories that should have been reported? Because it was historic. For what reason? Well, one of the reasons was this was the very first time that the sitting president of the United States was there in person to address the huge crowd of marchers. See, every other time, folks, listen to me now. I know Ronald Reagan, I believe he, re- he recorded a message he had given then from the White House, and it was played over the speakers. And then I think, I don't know if George um, Bush, uh, you know, did something, but it was recorded. Remember one time they did it by telephone. Very, by telephone, that's right, and so on and so forth. But here now, here now is the president who is the first one in American history to stand with the people and say what he believes, what he promises, what he stands for. And um, I, want, I want to open with just a few words of this little song because— this is the crux of it, folks. Listen to Phil Keighley. Who will speak up for the little ones Helpless and half abandoned They've got a right to choose life They don't want to lose I've got to speak up, won't you? You know, Rich, uh, during the many years that you and I together have been deeply involved in watching and reporting and studying the pro-life movement. Those who are really trying to speak up for the little ones, uh, the more we have watched it, the more we realize that there are those that hate the subject. They want to ignore it. They want to absolutely ignore it. And I wonder, now I don't really wonder, I honestly believe this is part of the hatred uh, we see all around us for the president of the United States uh, that we have right now. Listen to this. It is my profound honor to be the first president in history to attend the March for Life. We're here for a very simple reason, to defend the right of every child born and unborn to fulfill their God-given potential. Now, Rich, I remember, I remember vividly uh, when, uh, when Mitt Romney and uh, Ted Kennedy were debating for who was going to be the governor, I think, of Massachusetts at that time. Senator. 
uh, senator, whatever it was, it involved Massachusetts, and they were debating to prove that they were more pro-abortion, were more in favor of abortion than the other one. They were having back-and-forth debates as to who was the most pro-abortion, and that's kind of been the way. One is a Republican, the other was a Democrat. I kind of think that's what we have a lot of now. Here we have a person who really speaks out and is proud that he, in fact, is pro-life. Now, here is the vice president that he chose, Donald Trump chose, to be his vice president. Let's see what he says at that uh, March for Life rally in Washington. Hello, March for Life, and especially to all the wonderful young people of this pro-life generation. I'm Vice President Mike Pence. And I'm Karen Pence. And, and we are pro-life. Pro yeah. <laughs> um, Rich, do you know how much money Planned Parenthood has? I mean, they get it from the government. They get it from the taxes. And every place else they can, they can get the money. And all of the other forces in Washington and everywhere else that absolutely hate people like this that are supporting the life of the least of these. What's your comment? Well, yes, Dad, and that's why it's such an evil, but it's so encouraging to see people like we're there at the March for Life for, to stand up for righteousness and that the president and the vice president to speak likewise. Now, since that, since that time, here is an article that you and I both have seen and read because McLean Bible Church in McLean, Virginia, one of the largest um, good, solid Bible-preaching churches uh, in, in that part of the country. I think they have a Christian school. It's really large. The pastor's name is David Platt. And uh, the article said, the article said that David Platt was a very popular pastor of that large, large church, and he's an author as well. Uh, he said that there was a time in his life when he needed to absolutely repent for not preaching enough on the subject of abortion, taking the life of an innocent human being as a young pastor because he was, of course, afraid of the deacons or other people would criticize him or the media would do whatever they do. So you see, this March for Life on Washington helps people get out of the, get out of the bushes, kind of get out of get out of the shadows and start speaking what they believe in their heart to help other people come to grips with the subject. Yes, because he said, I really got convicted far before it's any kind of a political issue. It's a biblical issue that God speaks really clear about the value yeah. of life. Listen, folks, we're going to dig deep into this subject now because it's for our audience that I want to bring this up. Um, here is a young woman who spoke on exactly what we're talking about. We could debate back and forth, back and forth, but we'll never get it right until somebody says, this is what we're talking about. Here's her voice. You're in a conversation about abortion, and someone says, human life doesn't begin at conception. It's just a clump of cells. What would you say? It's easy to say life doesn't begin at conception because an embryo doesn't look like what we think people should look like. But we know human life begins at some point. Here are a few things to remember while you think about when that is. First, life doesn't begin at birth. 
It isn't logical to say life begins at birth because that would suggest that the baby inside the womb one day prior to birth wasn't alive. It's not reasonable to say an individual who is alive at birth is not alive one day prior to birth. The only difference is where they are. So we know life does not begin at birth. Second, life doesn't begin at viability. Many argue that human life begins once a baby can survive on her own outside the womb. But there are problems with this argument too. After all, viability changes based on technology. Today, babies can be born at 24 weeks and survive. But 200 years ago, that wasn't possible. Viability is also determined based on where you are born. Wealthy nations make things possible for babies that wouldn't be possible in a poorer country. Does that mean a 24-week baby in the United States is more alive than a 24-week baby in the jungles of the Congo? Of course not. So life must be determined by something other than viability. Third, life does not begin with a heartbeat. We know that living things only come from other living things. It wouldn't be possible then for the embryo to be non-living for the first few weeks and suddenly spring into life. So the embryo has to be alive prior to the heartbeat. Does this mean that we can be alive without a heartbeat? Yes. That's actually what makes the newly conceived embryo more functionally impressive than a born person. Yeah, you see, Rich, um, we'll carry this whole thing a little later, but I know that that people can get all caught up in terms. They can get all caught up in names. They can say, well, now are we talking about a human being? Are we talking about a child? Are we talking about a fetus? Are we talking about all these different descriptions of the life of an innocent human being? Now, there was a pastor years ago from Houston, Texas, Dr. Lawrence White. He was a Lutheran minister, Missouri Synod Lutheran Church there in Houston, Texas. And I heard him bring a message on this subject directly to pastors and all Christians. For goodness sake, let's get it right, folks. And then we had him come up to our headquarters and uh, give that message to a, an audience of a, of a seminary. It was, a, it was Midwestern Baptist Seminary, I think, um, so, that, so that we could record it properly and have good audio and we could share it with our listeners, and we have many times. It's called The Sin of Silence. All right, listen, folks, I love that title, The Sin of Silence, and here is Dr. Lawrence White to tell you what it means. I've been traveling across the length and breadth of this great land over the last few years, talking primarily to pastors groups, seeking to awaken and arouse God's spokesmen among us to be what God has called them to be, to preach his word without apology, without hesitation, without reluctance. And so I was very pleased this past January, end of last December, to have the opportunity to take my two sons, Adam, who's 23, and Aaron, who's 20, with me on a trip to Germany. As a Lutheran Christian, that's where my historic and theological roots are. And I wanted the boys to see where they came from and to get some context, I guess you could call it, a setting in which to evaluate and assess what's happening in our country and in their lives. And so we flew out of Houston on Christmas Day. We landed in Berlin 
And one afternoon we rented a van and we drove out into the countryside about 35 kilometers or so northeast of Berlin to a little farming community called Oranienberg. Not much there, a couple of taverns, a couple of gas stations, a few houses. That's about it. Nobody would ever have heard of that little town were it not for the fact that Heinrich Himmler chose Oranienberg as the site of one of his prototype concentration camps. A horrible place called Sachsenhausen. That means the home of the Saxons. I took the boys there that day because I wanted them to see what had happened to this great Christian nation, this homeland of the Reformation, almost overnight. And the boys grew quiet as we walked across the vast expanse where the barracks once stood that held hundreds of thousands of prisoners. During the 12 years of the Hitlerreich, we saw the bales of human hair and the piles of children's shoes. We went to the medical laboratories where gruesome experiments were conducted on living human beings without anesthetic because they were not viewed as human because of their race or their language. And finally we walked to the back where far in the corner the crematorium once stood. The oven where they burned the bodies of the dead. And out in front of it was a grotesque wrought iron statue of two emaciated inmates hauling the dead body of one of their cohorts toward the gaping doors of the oven. The building itself had actually collapsed. They'd buried so many people underneath it that the foundations had been undermined. But the metal supports that once held those ovens were still there. And as we came up there three days after Christmas, in front of the doorway to that crematorium, there was a withered Christmas wreath with a white ribbon on it. And the slogan on that ribbon said, from the Christians of Germany, we kneel before God in bitter regret and humble repentance, and we ask his forgiveness for the Jews and all the others who died in this place. And as we turn to walk away, out across the compound once again, my 20-year-old Aaron put his arm around me in the condescending way that sons have with their fathers. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, you need to keep giving those speeches that you've been giving. And I felt good. Because for the first time, my boys understood within the depths of their hearts what's happening in America today. But there in Sachsenhausen, for the very first time, they saw for themselves how much is at stake in our America and how desperately important these issues are and how much we stand to lose if we do not awaken and rouse ourselves quickly. That the people of God in Christ cannot disengage from the culture in which they live. We cannot withdraw to the comfortable security of our beautiful sanctuaries and sit in our padded pews while the world all around us goes to hell. For to do so is a betrayal of the Lord whose name we bear. And it is a denial of the power and the efficacy of his word, the word that he has given us to proclaim. In Germany, as here in the United States, one of the most clever tools in the enemy's arsenal 
used to silence and intimidate Christians, to drive them out of the public square, was the lie of the separation of church and state. There was a meeting held in the German capital city of Berlin in 1934. Hitler had been chancellor for just over a year at that point. He was taking the nation through a process which in German was called Gleichschaltung. That means coordination. Everything was being realigned in terms of national socialist philosophy. And that included the churches. And protests had begun to rise from the people of God about this interference in the church and its life. And so Hitler called together the most important preachers in the land. And he gathered them there at the Reichschancellery to reassure them and to intimidate them, if he could, to silence their criticism so that he could go on with his plans for the country. And Hitler moved through the crowd that day, patting the preachers on the back, making them feel important, smiling and reassuring. He told them their state subsidies would continue, their tax exemptions were secure, that the church had nothing to fear from a Nazi government. And finally, one brash young preacher who was there, Martin Niemöller was his name, had had enough. Today, we'd call him politically incorrect. He was going to tell the truth, even if that truth was not popular. And he pushed his way to the front of the room until he stood eye to eye with the German dictator. And he said, Herr Hitler, our concern is not for the church. Jesus Christ will take care of his church. Our concern is for the soul of our nation. It was immediately evident that the brash young preacher spoke only for himself as a chagrin silence fell over that room and his colleagues hustled him away from the front. Hitler with a natural politician's instinct saw that reaction and he understood exactly what it meant and he smiled as he said to himself almost reflectively, the soul of Germany, you can leave that to me. And they did. They kept their religion and their politics strictly separate from one another. And as the innocent were slaughtered and the nation was led down the path to destruction, they looked the other way and they minded their own business. And their country was destroyed. I would submit to you today that we in America find ourselves in a frighteningly similar predicament. Once again, the innocent are being slaughtered in a 26-year holocaust that makes Hitler look like a humanitarian by comparison. Once again, the nation is being led down the path to destruction. And once again, by and large, God's people are looking the other way. I don't have to tell anyone in this room tonight how far down that path to destruction we've already traveled. You see the evidence in families that are fractured, in marriages that are broken, in young people that lose their way and often their lives in a maze of alcohol and drugs, in a culture that can no longer distinguish between lust and love, that is willing to tolerate the vilest perversion as alternate acceptable lifestyle while pestilence stalks the land, in public schools that have become facilitators for fornication and procurers for the abortionist knife in a nation that has lost the moral will 
to distinguish between that which is right and that which is wrong. We know all too well how far down that road to destruction we have already gone. And that's because in large part every time a Christian, particularly a Christian pastor, raises his voice on a matter of public policy, the immediate hue and cry from the media, from the political and educational elite and establishment is, wait a minute, we have the separation of church and state in this country. You Christians, you keep your morality to yourselves. As history repeats itself, they smile reassuringly as they tell us the soul of America. You can leave that to us. And we have. Brothers and sisters, the time has come and is long since past when we stopped listening to and being immobilized by these lies from the father of lies. This is the genius of America. The recognition that a country like ours, a country where the people rule, must be a country where morality prevails. But that's not the kind of country that we have seen developing all around us every day. That's not the kind of country we read about when we pick up the newspapers every morning. America has forgotten who she is. And if she does not remember soon, it will be too late. In the 1830s, a French nobleman named Alexis de Tocqueville came from Europe to this new land to see what it was that gave America its vitality and its strength. And he toured across this country. He saw all that there was to see. And when it was done, he summed it up in these impassioned words. He said, I sought the key to the greatness and the genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields, in her boundless forests, in her rich mines, in her vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution. But it was not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I understood the secret of her genius and her power. America is great, de Tocqueville said, because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, then she will also cease to be great. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is an offense to any people. There is that indissoluble connection between greatness and goodness upon which this country was built. We have severed that connection over the last few decades. We have sown the wind of immorality and we are reaping the whirlwind of destruction and death. And we, God's people in Christ, have been placed here by the Lord for such a time as this. America will not turn from the path of destruction until the Christians of this land stop blending in and going along. We have become a chameleon church. We can blend in anywhere. We can go along with anything, no matter how perverse it may be. 
Just so long as no one figures out that we are sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. For then we might have to endure the scorn and the ridicule of the world. We must stop compromising and yielding. We must be sure that it is the Lord Jesus for whom we stand. But of this one thing we can be absolutely certain. The Lord God Almighty hates the murder of innocent unborn children. Uh, Rich, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You, you know, it's as though he would have preached that sermon last week, for goodness sake. Well, truth is truth. Absolutely. And I love where he said, tell the truth even when it's not popular. Yes, absolutely. I tell you what, before we leave now, I want you to give the listener comment line. The listener comment line, 1-800-345-2621. 1-800-345-2621. I tell you what, here's Phil Kagey again, folks. Listen to this now. I want you to take it to heart. We'll speak up for the little ones. Helpless and half abandoned They've got a right to choose life They don't want to lose I've got to speak up, won't you? Mm. Okay, Rich, this has been... I, I've been fired up ever since <laughs> Ever since I, I was watching, carefully watching The March for Life in Washington, D.C. And seeing the young people and the huge crowds, the unbelievable size of the people who journeyed all the way to, to Washington, D.C. from all across America to let everybody know where they stand, where America is standing more and more and more against the taking of an innocent, unborn human being's life. And I appreciate the testimony of Pastor David Platt, and I trust that there'll be many more pastors across our land that, that will begin speaking out on this very, very important life and death matter. And for goodness sake, folks, when you are going to vote for someone, I don't care what the office is, and that person cannot do the right thing and say, this is where I stand, this is who I am, this is who I've always been, for goodness sake, why on earth would you support a party or a candidate, or anyone else for any office. If he wants to, or she, or she or she want to be your leader, and then they can't even go that far to state unequivocally who they are on this level. Especially if you believe the Bible. This is Dick Bodnow with this chapter of The Complete Story's Public Service, and I'll see you later. <laughs> 